question that I want to start with this morning. Is love enough to save us? So we live in a culture that loves to think about love and finding that person in your life who will, who will satisfy and make your life work, and that that's the most important thing that you can, you can have in life. Is love enough to save us? I want to tell you the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. So this, these are two people in a Greek myth of old um, that has been uh, brought back in a musical called Hades Town. So it's, uh, it actually came up to Proctor's a month ago. I'm curious, did anyone see Hades Town up at Proctor's? Okay, we got a couple people. All right. I know someone else did, but they're in the nursery. So let me tell you about Orpheus and Eurydice. And it's it's working through this question, is love enough to save us? So they were a young couple in love, and Eurydice, the, the woman, she dies. And in Greek thinking, when you died, you went down to Hades. In the musical, she, of course, is in Hades town and under the power of the, the god Hades. And so Orpheus loves her so much, hates the idea of her losing her, so he de is determined to travel to Hades to save her. Now, most people have no ability to do that, but Orpheus did have one skill, and that is he wrote the most beautiful song ever. And with that song, he is able to charm Cerberus, the, the wolfhound guarding hell, and he's able to work his way all the way down to the place of the dead, Hades in Greek myth. And there, with his song, he even convinces uh, Hades and his wife Persephone to let Eurydice go. So he, he had that, that power, and so there's one condition, that in order to, to, for her to leave, Orpheus has to lead her out of Hades and not look back, to trust that she's following him all the way. And so his love is so great, he's able to get her, but in the end, his strength fails. He looks back. By the way, spoiler alert, I'm sorry. It's only a 3,000-year-old Greek myth. But, um, but anyway, so he ends up looking back, and she's lost. The point of the story is his love was great, great, great enough that he would travel into hell, to Hades, to save her. But he lacked the strength to actually rescue her. He lacked the power to, to do this. I actually I did see Hades Town, and it just so happened while we were in the Christianity 101 class, we were doing the Apostles' Creed where it says, he descended into hell or Hades, which, which would have been the original reading, and how Jesus did descend into Hades. And so my mind started connecting. Could this be saying how, how the Greeks viewed that, yes, even if a love is such that someone would travel to Hades, what if they're not strong enough to save us? In our world, romantic love is the most important thing. It's, it's no, 
people have this idea that if you just find that one person to love you, everything will be good in life. But the truth is, no human love, no matter how great, can, can overcome death. Death separates from all relationships. No one can go with us there. And what if we face death and there's no one to rescue us? What if we, like poor Eurydice, were stuck in Hades with no one to set us free? That's what I want to think about for a minute. Imagine that's so. Imagine for a minute, what is death like if you take God out of the equation? Well, there's different views. One is the materialist view, which says that your soul is really just things happening in your brain patterns, right? Neurons firing. So when your body dies, there's, there's nothing that remains. Or maybe it remains for a little while of, of a kind of the energy continues until it slowly dissolves into nothing. The dissolution of the soul. If that's true, that means there's no awareness after death. And eventually, it'll be as if you never existed. Oh yeah, but my family will remember the me. Well, eventually they're going to die. And, and maybe even if you do something so great as to be re- remembered, they'll remember the act, but they won't really know who the person was that did it. So, the materialist view. Then, probably more commonly today, is the spiritualist view. We love ghosts. Like one of the, the most popular t- TV shows, like uh, comedies, is, is Ghosts on CBS, P- Paramount, whatever. Uh, so, and it's, it's, it's a fun one. We'll occasionally watch it where these ghosts from different eras are all hanging out together. And that idea is that um, you survive death and you can't physically do anything, but at least you get to s- stand around and watch and, you know, hang out with your friends who are also dead. And that's kind of a nice view of ghosts. But the truth is, there's no reason to think that if we had no body, no physical body, then how would we have any senses at all? Right? We would, we would not really be able to see or be aware of things or note things. We may exist, but who's to say there's any sense of emotion or memory that goes along with that, we would just be mere floating souls. And so the spiritualist view is that something remains, but it has no power. And then you could maybe even go from there to more of like an ex- existentialist view. I'm, it's probably not the technical phrase of existentialism, but, but it's a sense that we exist and we have awareness, but you, you have no of this romantic ideas that will be ghosts that can do anything. Instead, we're in the dark because we have no body. We have no ability to, to have no senses with which we can see things. It would be as if we were living in a room alone in complete darkness. You hear nothing, see nothing, taste nothing. Would that not be more how death would work? Imagine that. Imagine living in a room of complete darkness, seeing nothing, hearing nothing, completely alone, and all you have is your own thoughts. 
would not your thoughts go to a very dark place? Would not the worst things that's ever happened in your life come back to you? And that's what you'd have, these racing, obsessive thoughts forever and ever without end. When Jesus talked about death and the judgment, he talked about being shut out. If you're shut out of God's presence, you're shut out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then one last view. What if we're not actually alone? What if there are spiritual powers out there that while we are merely just a, a spirit existing, they actually have agency and they're not good? What if there are such things as evil spirits who we would be under their power in this, this, this existential afterlife? So not, it's not just a room in the darkness. It's a room in the darkness with voices yelling at you, screaming constantly, able to, to, to make you feel the worst of feelings. Friends, just because it's not talking about a lake of fire doesn't mean being shut out of God's presence forever is, is not hell. We need someone who could save us. Someone who would come and rescue us from the power of these dark forces, from the power of death and Hades itself. We need someone who loved us enough that they would travel themselves into hell to save us. And we need someone who has the power to actually do it. Last Sunday, the message, the king has come to save us. Because of his great love that God has for us, God our Father engineered a, a salvation plan. He, he, he put it together. In Romans 5.8 it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father's love was such, he wanted no one to spend eternity shut out from his presence and alienated. So he sent his Son who gave his life. That's love. Jesus, the Savior, he enacted God's plan of salvation by giving his life on the cross. It says, Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Right? Through his death, he brings us back into a right relationship with God. So we are rescued from eternal death by his work. And, and it's the Holy Spirit that, that applies it or imparts this salvation to us. The Holy Spirit, in Titus 3, it says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, so that, that, that brokenness and, and hurt within, that the, the junk in our, our hearts, the Holy Spirit can wash that clean so that we can be in God's presence, so that we are not alienated from God because of the, that sin within us, that, that darkness within us. So that's God's love. 
And on Easter morning, God declared through the resurrection of Jesus that he has the power to save us. The resurrection shows that not only did Jesus descend into Hades, he was raised again to show that he can bring us with us. That it's not like Orpheus, who can only go part of the way, that Jesus Christ could bring us out of death to be with him forever. On Easter morning, the disciples, the ones who knew Jesus the best, did not yet understand this. They were not expecting to find an empty tomb or a savior. They were still stuck in the mode of his death being a tragedy. His death being a loss, unexpected, out of the blue. None of the disciples believed yet. They saw the cross as a tragic defeat and death as more powerful than love. And then Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Actually, she went as part of a, a group of women, it says, uh, that went to the other gospel accounts that list the different names of who went to the tomb early. They went early Sunday morning. While it was still dark, they, they knew that they barely had time to get Jesus into the tomb before the, the, the Sabbath started on Friday night, and so the preparations had not been fully done. And they wanted to finish that. They went not sure of the stone, of how they would roll that stone away. But when they got there, Mary, uh, or they, they saw the stone had already been taken away. It says they looked in and saw that the tomb was empty. And so Mary and the rest of the women went back to tell the men. Mary's probably maybe younger. She ran faster. <laughs> so she got there, and she was the one who told both Peter and John. And so note what she says when she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid them. So, so it's obvious the we means there was more than just her. It was a group of women. Why does John only list Mary? Because John is the one who heard from Mary, right? For, for him, it's sunk into his mind that Mary Magdalene was the one who told him as well as Simon Peter, about the tomb being empty. So she gives them the news, and they, they have to see this for themselves. So it says, Peter went out with the other disciple. And it doesn't name the disciple, and it's, it's clearly the way it's fra phrased, it is meant to refer to John, the gospel writer himself. John, for some reason, would not name his own name in the Gospels. I think it's a sense, sign of humility. So instead, he would say, the one who Jesus loved, or the one who was a friend of Jesus. That's how he viewed it. So, so you have Peter and John together. Now, Peter's not Peter's real name, by the way. His real name was Simon. Peter gave him the nickname of Rock, which is what Peter means, the Rock. So you have the one that Jesus loved, and the rock, they decide to head out and see for themselves what happened to Jesus' body. In writing the account, there's something very important that, that John wants everyone to know. There's something so important, he, he repeats it in some way four different times. It says, both of them were running together. But what John wants you to know is that he outran Peter to the tomb. 
Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So he's the faster runner than Peter. Now he gets there, and it says he stooped to look into the tomb. So imagine it's probably, you know, the opening would have been kind of low, and it's just like a little thing carved out as a borrowed tomb. And so he would have had to look in, and you'd probably have some light coming in to see. But John doesn't go into the tomb. He only looks. But he can see that it's empty. It's not, it's not a deep cave or anything like that. Peter says, who came after him, went to the tomb. And Peter's bolder. He just walks right in. And so Peter goes all the way into the tomb and sees how the linen cloths are laid out. So it's like the body just vanished in the midst of these, these linen cloths. And he even says how he picks up the, the face cloth, the face napkin, in a sense, that had been over that. And, and he looks at all that, and they're trying to figure this out. Um, and then, so after Peter gone in, it says, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. So now that Peter's gone in, John also will go in, and he also sees, and he sees for himself. And this is really the thing John wants everyone to understand. He saw this with his own eyes. When John would later in life write the letter about, or write the letter to the church, and it says, First John, in that letter, verses 1 and 2, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life. Right? John wants people to know, I'm not just philosophing, you know, bringing this out of my own thoughts. I saw it. I even touched it. Right? So it declares that the disciples as a whole still did not believe. Verse 9. Uh, verse 9 says, The rest of the disciples, or the disciples, did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now Jesus had told them he would do this. Back a few weeks before, they had traveled up a mountain, and on the way down from the mountain, uh, Jesus said to them, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, because they'd, they'd seen Jesus glorified on the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And it says they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, wondering what this rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus had told them and prepared them, and yet they just could not conceive of what was going on and how it all worked, except John. So verse, back in verse 8, it says, John, when he saw the empty tomb... He put the clues together, and he believed. John got there first. He's the first one to, to get his mind around the idea of the whole thing. Not only the death of Jesus, but the resurrection. John's the one who saw and believed. And guess what? Right behind him was Mary Magdalene. 
So John got there first, and then right after him, Mary. She had run into town to tell them the, the tomb was empty, and then she came back out, and she's weeping. And, and for her, she's not there yet, right? She, she's still assuming someone took the body, and so she, she doesn't know what to do, and so she goes in, so she wants to look again. Maybe the body's back, so she, she again, she stoops to look into the tomb. And she sees the cloth, well, she doesn't see the cloths, because now something new is going on. It says there's two angels sitting there, and she can't process it. She, she's like, they're sitting there, and they say, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to, them, they said to them, they have taken away my Lord. She didn't say, what are you doing in here, and why are you glowing? Like, like she just couldn't grasp what was going on. Her brain's not working, and it's understandable. You, you you, won't, you don't expect, if you saw him nailed to the cross, you couldn't expect him to walk out of that grave. And she says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And, and, and then, so having said this, you know, she's, she, she turns, she looks, and there's a guy behind her, but she doesn't, it's, doesn't click in, and he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So she's now assuming this is the gardener crew. And, and she says, supposing him to be the gardener, says, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me, do you know where his body's at? I, we'll come get him. We'll, we'll do the work. We're, we're, not, we're not asking you to do any overtime. You know, we'll, we'll go find him. We'll, we'll bring him back. And it doesn't click for her until one key moment. See, see what it says. Jesus said to her, Mary. That's all it took. When he said her name, then she understood. Then she believed. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, Jesus, it is you. You are alive. And Jesus says, you know, do not cling to me. So I want to think about this, this phrase, but what, what it says is, what, what's the first thing she did? She, she grabs a hold of him, right? She, she can't help it. Rabboni, you're alive. It, 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 she still doesn't understand probably fully, but now she sees and believes. So this, this phrase, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Sometimes that's even said, do not touch. And I've heard people think, well, did... Was Jesus still in some like weird spiritual state where he's not like fully resurrected yet, that he still had to go, you know, do some business with God and then he could come down? I, I, I don't think, I think there's a much simpler explanation because we know Jesus was touched, uh, not just by Mary. Later on, he says to Thomas, right, touch my wounds, put, put your hand right there. I want you to know for sure. He, he eats bread and fish, right, to prove to them that he really has a physical body, right? Like, he, he's, he's resurrected from the dead. Doesn't, doesn't mean he's, like, spiritually resurrected. It, he's, it's making clear Jesus is touchable, that the resurrection was not an abstract, theological, spiritual experience. It was a real, physical, happening event within human history, and so that his body is alive. It is different. It is beyond the body that we have in our, you know, that we have currently. 
It's a body that can walk through walls, and it's a body that can uh, that will never die. It says we have a perishable body now. That the the body we have in the resurrection will be imperishable. Will be will be set right in every way. So what what's he saying? Don't cling to me. I I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. He says. Mary, I know you want to hold on to me and never let go. That's not going to work, right? I'm going to be around for a while. And he would. He would, he would spend 40 days making appearances to his disciples so that others could, could come and see that he was alive. But the plan would not be for him to forever just stay in his physical body walking around the earth. Now, that would be really cool if, like, Jesus resurrected, was still alive, and maybe doing a walking tour around the world. So, you know, that, that's how we would know he's still resurrected today. But instead, instead, it says after 40 days, he ascended to the Father. Because we know from the Apostles' Creed, where is he now? Seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He ascended because he would be declared to be the king of all. And he would be seated on the throne and from heaven then he is ruling his kingdom and bringing his kingdom to earth. So after these, this morning, Mary, John believes, John got there first, Mary was right behind him, that's two. Jesus would start making appearances. He, he'd go grab two more, Cleopas and his friend. Uh, the Gospel of Luke talks about that, who are walking away from the city. Later that night, he would appear to the, the rest of the disciples in the upper room. Um, when Thomas wasn't there, he'd come back the next week to make sure Thomas believed. And it talks about Jesus making all these appearances. What's fascinating to me is each of them seems to have a different sticking point. Right? For John... For John it was, he saw the empty tomb, and he knew the scriptures, and he put the clues together. Right? He saw the resurrection now within the context of the scriptural plans. For Mary, it was the very personal. It was hearing her name. Jesus called her name. For Thomas, it was, right, he had to see with his eyes. Um, each of the disciples in a sense, seemed to have a different thing that enabled them to, to come to believe and know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Is there one of the disciples in that story that you relate to more than any of the others? Because I think we all have our different aspects of like, what convinces us it really is true that, that Jesus really did rise from the dead? What What's the sticking point? What's the thing that we have to see in order to believe and understand? As you leave this morning, I want you to walk away with two things. I want you, first of all, you walk away with a living hope. First Peter chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think the resurrection, our confidence in that, can build this, this living hope within us. What's, what's the difference between, or the opposite of a living hope? Wishful thinking. Right? We don't really know if it's true or not. We, we kind of have a vague hope that it is. I want to share with you what 
what has given me confidence in the resurrection and the truth of it? I know when I first came to belief, I did not want to believe out of wishful thinking. I had a fear of death, even as a young person. Because I, I, that thing we did where I, different views, I was struggling with, you know, one of those. Like, could, is this what death is like? And I, I was fearful of what that would mean for me. And so when I heard the gospel news, I wanted to believe it, but I did not want to believe it just out of wishful thinking. I, I had to know if I'm going to believe it, that it really is true. And so there are three things over my life that I, I think were there, but they've also helped me gain confidence. And the first one is what I've talked about this morning, the eyewitnesses who weren't expecting a resurrection, but nevertheless came to believe. Right? As we see in the accounts, they weren't looking for this. Something had to happen to convince them that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And, and we know that, that this is true, that in a sense, the church would have died. Right? If, if Jesus would not have raised, if all we had was what the disciples were like at, after the cross, how they were hiding in the upper room, how they were all discouraged and walking away, we would have never heard of Jesus. He'd have been a historical blip. If Jesus had not really risen from the dead, the church would have never been born. And so the fact that, that this was something that, that caught the disciples by surprise, but once they saw it, they knew it was true, that has given me confidence in the resurrection. A second thing that has given me confidence as I've grown in my understanding is how the resurrection fits within the overarching scriptural story of salvation. If, you, if you've been in this church since like last September when I started a whole series, like I, I did the whole big picture of, of the Bible. And, and I see the resurrection as the culmination of what God had been about throughout the whole scriptures. And that was not written just by one person. In other words, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just one person writing this down, making this up, because they too wanted to wishfully think it be true. I had to know there's a reason to believe. But when you look at the scriptures as a whole, you see it was written by numerous authors, and yet there's this, this story that winds through it that makes sense of how God would try to save people who had walked away from him. And the scripture is the final step in that. So when I saw the scripture, uh, the resurrection within the scriptural story, it says in 1 Peter 1, it says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the sufferings of Christ and the glory of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, was part of that, that plan that God was doing. If they were making it up, they never would have made up the way they did. 
we know it has to be ultimately of God. One thing, if they were making it up, they would have never made it up that the women were the ones that found the tomb. Because in that, that, that ancient mindset, that would, not have, that would have been a count against believing. But it ha- that's the way it happened. That was God's design. The first preachers of the resurrection were the women. The third reason why I've grown in confidence in this. Like Mary, he called my name. It is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit that first led me to believe, and it's been an ongoing conversation. Now, it's never been an audible voice. I don't have these dramatic spiritual experiences. Um, Some may have much more than I do. But there's times when I see God do something, and God's Spirit says, See? Look at that. One of those happened this week for me. Right? And maybe you know what I'm talking about. It's where he calls your name and says, yeah, I'm still with you. I'm still here. Because what's our great fear? That we would be left alone. That we would spend eternity alienated from anyone who loves us. But the good news of the gospel is he came after us. Like Orpheus and his love for Eurydice, God's love for us is even greater. So I want you to, to this morning to walk away with a living hope. I also want you to walk away this morning with an inexpressible joy that the Lord is alive. First Peter talks about that. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If Jesus is raised from the dead, we know it, it, it comes back to us, that he's saving us, that he has the power to save us from death and save us into eternal life. May that truth fill you with such joy that it carries with you as you go from this place, as you, as you live out your life this week. I'd invite the, the worship team up as, as we, we close in, in a great song, but, but let's, let's just